Well, let's turn together this morning to Ephesians chapter 4, and we are in the middle of this great epistle. As you know, Ephesians 4 uh, marked a tremendous shift in the book of Ephesians because it begins in verse 1 that Paul is calling us to live a life that is commensurate with our redemption. He says, walk worthy in the manner to which you've been called. And that word called there means the call of salvation. And not just the gospel invitation, but true salvation in Him, true regeneration. That we had a heart of flesh and now we, pardon me, a heart of stone and now we have been given to a heart of flesh, real redemption. So as we have come through this fourth chapter, when we have seen these last few weeks in verses 17 and 18 paving the way here for us, that Paul is now calling us to the new life. That again, if we say that we're Christians, we ought to live like it. That's a reasonable expectation, isn't it? That here, if we claim to be new creations in the Lord, that we are to live as new creations. And so in verses 17 to 24, we see the first of many commands here to us, and this is the put-off, put-on relationship. We're commanded here to put off the old man, the old self, and put on the new self. In fact, we're told not only to put off the old and to put on the new, but we're seeing here that that new man is renewed in the spirit of our minds. So as we look through this text this morning, We've covered verses 17 and 18. We're going to be going through verses 19 to 24. But for context, let's read together Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24. This is the new man. This is the new work of grace in our lives as his dearly saved people. Paul says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed to every practice of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. The apostle here has charged the Ephesians in the name and by the authority of the Lord Jesus that having professed the gospel, the gospel being good news, the gospel being that Jesus Christ left heaven's throne, came to this earth, died upon the cross for our sins, and that he took every sin that would ever be committed by everyone that would ever believe God's anger and wrath against that sin, our guilt and penalty of sin, and then rose from the dead three days later so that we might have peace with God forever. Isn't that good news? That is the gospel. 
How can sinful people like me and you come before a holy God without God violating his holiness and justice? And the answer is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's where holiness and justice, love and mercy kiss, as one Puritan writer described it. It's where we see God's holiness and justice. He's a holy God. And it's where we see his love and grace and mercy extended to us become wed, as it were, so that we might have eternal life in him. And the good news is, once you have peace with God, you can never lose it. Once you know the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it can never be taken away from you. No wonder why Paul says in Romans 8, that neither death nor life nor principalities nor things present nor things to come. He lists a whole litany of things that they thought maybe could somehow make them lose their salvation. And he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's enough to praise him for eternity, isn't it? That nothing can separate us from him. So we see that having professed the gospel that they should not live as unconverted Gentiles, the Lord saved them out of that huge life of idolatry. They walked in their carnal affections against the Lord. And do not men on every side walk in the vanity of their own minds? We can see that in our day as well. But he says they must be urged to have the distinction between a real Christian and what I would call is a pretend Christian, or you have maybe have heard of the phrase a nominal Christian. One that's a Christian in name only. One that is one by simply a verbal profession, but their lives have not changed. Their lives remain the same. And so Paul is being urged here to distinguish between the real believer and those that are maybe pretend Christians. And they were void of all saving knowledge. The Gentiles were at the time. They sat in darkness, and they loved it rather than the light. Jesus says this in John 3, that men love the darkness rather than the light. Before I became a Christian, I loved the darkness. And I didn't live a dramatic life of drugs and alcohol and carousing around. I was a good kid, as I tell people. I was Opie out of Andy of Mayberry. You know, I was a a nice young man, and I was a good young man. I was an obedient son to mom and dad, and I did well in school. And I really didn't get in trouble like other people would conceive as trouble. But here, I was in desperate need of salvation. Why? Because I thought my good, moral, righteous living meant something to God. If I did enough good works, that somehow my life was pleasing to the Lord. And I learned many years later as a 17-year-old in high school that my goodness was just as profound, just as sinful as any drug addict on the street was. There's level ground around the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So regardless of how that sin manifested itself, my heart was not right with the Lord. It took a work of grace to save me from the wretchedness of my own sin. This is how Paul is writing. He said they had a dislike and a hatred of a life of holiness, and not only the way of the life of God, of what he required, but to live for him, 
They did not know what it meant to live in truth and grace and goodness and kindness before God. So the truth of Christ against that backdrop in Ephesus and against the culture and the vacillating society of what we are facing today in our generation, it would seem to appear now that life of Christ, so beautiful and so powerful, but the corrupt nature is called a man, the old man in this text. It's of the diverse parts supporting and strengthening those sinful desires and deceitful lusts that we all once walked in. But here, they were to put off that old man like a garment, a filthy garment, like a raggedy old dress or a raggedy old suit of clothes. They were to change that old man and put on the new, the perfect righteousness of Christ. And this was a work of grace. It wasn't enough to simply shake off old corrupt principles to become, as it were, moral people, but to be saved ones, gracious-filled ones, to be ones that were full of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by the new man, it meant the new nature, the new creature, new principles, a new life, regenerating grace, salvation, not just to stop the old ways, but to live for Him in all the new ways that our salvation would want us to live by. This is good news. This is grace. And Paul tells us at the end of this section of verses we just read, it's a new life, and it's symboled by righteousness and holiness that is created or brought forth by God's mighty power. So by way of review, we saw in verse 17, if you see it there, He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's saying if you have a new life, don't go back to the old life. Don't walk as you once walked. Don't be given over to the carousing and the partying and the sinful desires. Don't walk as the former former manner of your life does in the futility of their minds. That word futility we saw last week as a very powerful word. It means uh, one that is uh, morally depraved, vanity. Literally, the futility of thinking was devoid of conscience, devoid of all godly truth, depraved, frail, a perverseness. And he says, don't walk in the futility And notice the phrase here, it's of their minds. How you think in your heart, Proverbs says, so you are. And this is the thing, people are governed by the futility of their thinking. Would you turn with me, uh, I thought of a verse here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We talk about spiritual battles and spiritual warfare. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says there's a battle going on. And it's one in the battle of the mind, the battle of thinking. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and in verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Maybe some of your translations say carnal, fleshly, human, as it were. But have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are those strongholds? He said we destroy arguments and Every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. There it is. It's the futility of their thinking. They 
are, we are given divine power to literally destroy or tear down strongholds, arguments, and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We see that unbridled in our culture today, don't we? People wanting to recreate God in their image, coming up with a God that's convenient but not a God that's holy. And so here we are seeing that we can destroy arguments, every lofty opinion, and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, ready to punish disobedience when your obedience is complete. So he is saying here that there's a war going on, that there's a loftiness there, there's a futility in their minds. And so we saw that first and foremost in the futility of their thinking, their understanding, their power of reasoning had been affected by sin. And this darkening is far worse than anyone could imagine. Notice here with me in verse 18 of, Philipp, uh, pardon me, of Ephesians chapter 4. They are darkened in their understanding. This is the futility. This is their identity, but also this is their depravity. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And Paul said it's due to the hardness of their hearts. And we saw this last week. There's a hardening that goes on. There's an ignorance. There's an alienation from the life of God, and therefore they are darkened in their understanding. Professing, as Romans 1 says, to be wise, they became fools. And the fool says, according to Psalm 14, in his heart there is no God. So this is how we see this in our day. We see that there is a foolishness to man's sinfulness. There is an identity. Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that we are new creations in Jesus Christ, and that new creation, all things have faded away. Behold, all things become New. And in verse 18, as we saw the new identity and new community of people, we saw the depravity by which they were to run from. In Ephesians 4:18, the hardness of the heart, their foolishness in thinking, the darkening of what they were given over to. So the apostle here is giving these new believers in Jesus Christ tremendous encouragement and hope in the gospel. And so he says, don't walk as you once walked. Don't be given over to the futility, the waywardness, the perverseness of thinking. It begins in the thoughts. As you know, that the greatest sinful tendencies begin with the thought in sinfulness. I'd like to show you this just briefly here this morning. Uh, would you go with me to James chapter 1? James chapter 1. This is a very practical book. And James tells us how is it that people are given over to sin. If you want to know where it comes from, similar to what our Lord said, that all sinful actions are born in the heart, and that's where it first comes. What's in the well comes up in the bucket. What's in the heart will come out in the life. What one believes determines how one behaves. And so he says in James chapter 1 and in verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself 
tempts no one. Some people attribute their sinful happenings of their lives to a holy God that's unconscionable. And in verse 14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. There's the futility of thinking, the desires of a darkened, sinful heart. He says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is what the Apostle Paul has said, the wages of sin is death. So the Gentiles, they came to Christ. They came to a saving knowledge of Jesus here in this very corrupt, sinful town of Ephesus. Paul's encouraging them, don't walk as the Gentiles walk. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Don't go back to a life of sin. Don't go back to a life where you're alienated from the life of God. Don't go to a life of ignorance. Don't go to a life where you're darkened in your understanding. Don't go back to a life that was reminiscent of the hardness of your heart. Live in such a way that is not depicting your depravity, but your salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, as we continue on here in our text this morning, this put-off, put-on relationship, it brings us to point three, not only identity, depravity, but here the apostle says that they were prone to impurity. Number three, impurity. Look here with me in Ephesians chapter 4. And in verse 19, he's still unfolding for us what that life of waywardness looked like before they came to Christ. He says they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, to greed, to practice every kind of impurity. This is what the Apostle Paul now is saying, that they were prone, they were maybe tempted to go back to. Physically, being blind means that you'll stumble in the dark if you don't have help. Spiritual blindness means that you're going to stumble spiritually. And so here we have enlightened eyes as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he is saying there they did have feeling and they did keep alive desire, namely feeling and desire for evil indulgence. They had abandoned themselves to vice, not to virtue. And the result was that the surrender was this, that God gave that sinner up to the full consequence of his or her sin. And so this precursor is found amid the ruins here of their lives spiritually. Notice these four words in, in verse 19. Notice these four words. First of all, the word calloused. Calloused. It, it denotes privation. It means the ability not to feel pain. You know, pain is a good thing, especially if you're an athlete here this morning. When you've stretched a muscle or if you've broken a bone, the ability to feel pain is a healthy thing. It means there's something in your body, your physical well-being, that's not operating correctly. And so here, they're saying here that they were unable to feel pain. They became insensible. Maybe one of your translations said, past feeling. They were void of feeling. They had become numb to a life of sin. It's used metaphorically to be 
saying insensible to honor or shame. Insensible to honor or shame. This is the word from where we get a word meaning uh, to be anesthetized, to take away pain. Paul is saying here they become calloused. They had had a callousness creep in over their heart and mind. Their conscience was void of determining sinful desires. They were just given over to a lack of feeling any pain whatsoever. There's an interesting verse in the Old Testament that I, sp- I think speaks to this in a very direct way. It's found in the book of Jeremiah. And would you go there with me? It's an Old Testament book, the book of Jeremiah. And it's Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 3. You know Jeremiah is called in Scripture the weeping prophet. And he was calling a wayward people to salvation in God, to salvation in Jehovah. And he's giving a pathology of his culture, as similar to what we went through last week in Romans chapter 1. We saw that God gave people up to the excess in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, to the excess of natural lust. And then in verse 26, to the excess of unnatural lust. And then in verse 28 in Romans 1, we saw them be given over to a a reprobate or debased mind, a mind that had lost conscience. God just simply gave them up to that sinfulness. Well, here in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 3, we see a great description of not only Jeremiah's culture, but of our culture as well. Notice this, beloved. He says in Jeremiah 3, 3, Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come. With the spring rain comes new foliage and refreshment and, and a, a, a time of new birth, as it were. And he said, And you have the forehead of a prostitute or a whore and refused to be ashamed. What an amazing verse. One translation said, that they've lost the ability to blush over their sin. That's it. That's it. They have the forehead of someone who no longer gets embarrassed by their sin, who no longer blushes over their depravity, blushes over their impurity. They refuse to be ashamed. It's the old saying that in my day, in the 70s and 80s, that if it feels good, do it. No, no blushing, no standard. The only standard would be is if it feels good to you, and if you're not trying to hurt someone else, then how could it be wrong if it feels so right? That's what he's saying here. They lost the ability to blush. And notice the graphic language. You have the forehead of a prostitute, one who is given herself to waywardness, and he's using this spiritually. The land is polluted, and he's saying that they have lost the ability even to not just discern right or wrong, but to feel ashamed of their sinfulness. This is similar to what Paul is writing to these believers in in Ephesus, to these new Christians there in Ephesians. He's saying, don't go back to the futility of your thinking. Don't go back to the hardness and ignorance. Don't walk as the Gentiles do. You've become saved. You were born out of that. And so it says they have become 
callous, as we go back to Ephesians 4, 19, they were callous, they were hard-hearted, they had lost the ability to blush. Conscience was gone. We said it last week, a seared conscience. A seared conscience. They became calloused. Notice secondly here, not only were they calloused in their thinking, but here they were given over, and I'd like to go to that word, greedy. They were given over to greed. This word in the Greek, it means covetousness, a greediness, um, a bounty or a blessing, extortion. This is rampant sin that includes not only the love of money, avarice, but it's connected with thievery, covetous thoughts, plans of fraud, or distortion. Have you ever had somebody defraud you? And it's being defrauded with the sins of the flesh. It's the root form from where these sins grow. It's the longing of the creature which has forsaken God to fill itself with the lower objects of nature. This is the impurity they were given over to. This is the impurity of their sinful hearts. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 to 11? We are going to see some of these incredible lists of sin that the apostle brings us to. As you know, the city of Corinth was not an easy place to live similar to the city of Ephesus. Rampant sin flourished in the church there. And the Apostle Paul is dealing with a a group of Christians just gone wild in their life. And he says in 1 Corinthians 6, these familiar words in verse 9 to 11, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There again is a truthfulness to something. God does not grade on a curve, does he? He doesn't say that you're maybe more moral than I am, or you're more holy this day than I am, or you're more religious this day than I am, or that maybe some days I maybe have lived a better life than you. All of our righteousness is like dirty, filthy rags. God does not look at us and grade on some sort of spiritual or moral curve. He defines us by one thing, and that's the perfect standard of his righteous character. Now we have a problem, because no one can satisfy in and of their own good works and religious lifestyle the perfect righteousness of God. That takes a perfect righteousness to bring us into perfection, and no man can do this. I can't do it. No amount of good works can do it. No amount of religious, philanthropic, uh, nice work to our neighbors, to our friends, to family can satisfy God. We must be saved by a perfect righteousness. So look, he says, don't you know that the unrighteous, it's another word for ungodly or lawless, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, he says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's quite a list, isn't it? It's a sweeping list. All sin is sin. But he's talking here about those that practice these things. This is what they're known by. Christians may fall into sin. We are not sinless people. We're new creations, but we live in unredeemed flesh, and we are prone to sin. Even now, we sin. And he's given a huge list here of the practice of sin. Christians may sin, but we should be quick to repent, to turn from that sin. None of us are perfect people. None of us are sinless people here this morning, are we? So we need to show grace with each other, not in toleration of sin, but in working to see people restored from their sin, brought back to a life of godliness and holiness before the Lord. And so he's listing a group of people here that don't be deceived, because these are some of the sins that were there in that city of Corinth. And so he's saying they're not, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. They're unrighteous But notice what Paul says here in verse 11. I love this. And such were some of you. You might say, Steve, why is that a lovely thing to say? It's because transformation had taken place. This is good news. You were washed. Notice the work of saving grace here. You were sanctified. Sanctified means set apart. We once walked in darkness. Now we're set apart to walk in light. We once were death, and now we've been set apart to walk in life. We once were enemies of God. Now we are the children of God, the friend of God. We once were under the judgment of God, and now we are under the love and mercy and grace of God. Once we were the enemy of God, and now we have peace with God. We were sanctified, set apart from those things, from the former way of life, to live now holy lives before a holy God. This is salvation. You were washed, thoroughly cleansed. You were sanctified, set apart. You were justified. 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 It's, a, it's an important word in Christian doctrine and in Christian gospel. To be justified means to have a right standing before God. Picture, <clears throat> pardon me, picture yourself before a judge, maybe you've had a speeding ticket or unpaid parking tickets or maybe a more serious crime against the rule of law, and you stand before a judge, and you might have a good defense attorney like Brother Ed here this morning or others that will represent you before the judge, pleading for mercy, pleading to be restored, pleading to have a right standing again in society under the rule of law by which we can be declared not guilty of the crime we've been charged with. Spiritually, it's in the same realm. We have a defense attorney. 1 John 2 says we have one that represents us before the divine bench, and it's Jesus Christ, the perfect one. The holy judge of all the universe demands justice. 
And the thing is, I can't pay enough righteousness to bring me into a right standing. Why? Because the sinfulness of my own heart has produced me to have an eternal crime before a holy judge. And the only way that that eternal crime can be paid for is through not my own incarceration spiritually, but through one who died in my place as a substitute, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And his righteousness is so perfect, it covers every sinful crime of my heart and life and will and emotion. And he does this for you too. Good news, isn't it? The gospel. We now have been bought Jesus Christ said, I'll pay the price for that man. I'll pay the price for that woman. I want to save a people and purchase them for my own possession. And therefore, he took those that were unjust, godless, lawless, guilty of every crime before a holy God, that if God was only a just God, he deserves, according to his own justice, he is right to sentence me to what my sin requires. And it's not life imprisonment. It is eternal hell forever and ever. If he was only just, and because he's holy, he has every right to sentence me to that which is commensurate with my sin and crime, and that's to spend an eternity in hell suffering for that forever and ever. Now, aren't you glad he's holy? And aren't you glad he's just? But aren't you glad he's loving and merciful and full of grace to sinful people? Here's what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor through Christ to those who are deserving of his curse. Grace is God's unmerited favor given to us through Christ to those who are deserving of his curse. Paul says, you're deserving of it. No unrighteous one will inherit the kingdom of God. How do unrighteous people like me and you have a right standing? How are we justified? It's by grace, isn't it? It's by grace. And when we have faith and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives us he imputes to us, he credits us the fullness of his perfect righteousness. Our sin is imputed to him. His righteousness is imputed to us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. There's the great transaction. Salvation. Salvation from every impurity. And he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How do sinful people have a right standing before a holy God? It's through Jesus Christ. Let's go to another passage, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. Paul's writing to a very young, timid Timothy. And he says this, he's bringing it to the point of the law, and he says the law is good, and it is good, if one uses it lawfully. When we see people twist the law 
to their own detriment or try to escape the just standard of the law to their own demise, trying to do an end around the rule of law. It's a disheartening thing. It's not an honorable thing. But Paul says the law is good if you, if you use it lawfully. Understanding this in verse, in verse 9, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. You see, when we preach the gospel, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must also share with people the law of God his unflexible justice, his perfect standard. Why? Because the law brings conviction of sin. But the gospel of grace brings the healing, the balm of mercy by which we now have salvation. He said the law, it's for the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murders, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Oh, but I love how he ends this, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You see, the law convicts us of sin. We stand before a holy God. We stand before the bench of the divine lawgiver, of God the Father, and we've all been condemned as guilty. The law has acted right. Paul says in Romans 7, I wouldn't know I was covetous unless the law said you're covetous. Like the rich young ruler who was ticking off how many ways he had been obedient to the law. And then the Lord said, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, then follow me. And it says that young man went away discouraged in his heart, saddened. Why? Because he was trying to say that he had a right standing before God based on the merits of his own good deeds. I've kept this law, I've kept this law, I've kept this law. And then the Lord hit him at the point where he was mostly vulnerable, covetousness. He had great wealth. And Jesus said, if you're serious about following me, give everything that you have. Get all, give all that you are for all that I am and then follow me. And the young man went away saddened because he knew that the grip of that was too much for him. It sentenced him. It judged him. It declared him guilty. But you see, the gospel of the blessed God comes and he says to lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinful, unholy, profane people, to murderers, to sexually immoral, to homosexuals, to enslavers, to liars, to perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, the law has rightly judged you and unmasked you as being sinners. But good news, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Lawless people can have a right standing before a holy God because of Jesus. That only happens in Christ. That only happens through the gospel of our Lord. Go with me while you're there in Timothy. Go to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And again, you'll see this here in a wonderful, powerful way. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, he says, Now the, the, the Spirit says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Isn't that interesting? All unsound doctrine that is not in accordance with the gospel, Paul calls the doctrines of demons. Amazing. 
through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, minds gone astray, reprobate minds, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God's created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. They had their own rules. They had their own religious rules. And this particular cult said you can't marry, you can't eat certain foods. I love salads, but it's nice to go and grab a burger every now and again, isn't it? Nice to have a bowl of fruit for dessert, but also nice to go to Kilwins ever again. No amens on Kilwins, okay. <laughs> but you see, they were saying you got to abstain from certain foods for God to love you. They had their own little religion, the religion of the food depraved. They had certain foods they had to be abstaining from. They forbid marriage. Marriage is a good thing. They were forbidding marriage. They were requiring abstinence. But he says everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So you can bless it. You can sanctify it. You can enjoy it in the Lord. This is what he's saying here. This is what he's saying. So they were given over to impurity. Greed, covetousness. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Notice this third word here, sensuality. Not just callousness, their hearts are hard. Not just greed, but sensualness. This is every form of sexual access. This is the absent of restraint. This isn't people that are tempted sensually, sexually, by debauchery, lasciviousness, or whatever, but it's the insatiable desire for pleasure even beyond the sexual. And he's saying they have no restraint. They just indulge themselves. They want to indulge themselves as much as possible. They're filling up their lives, and the eyes of man are never full when it comes to these kinds of indulgences. And he says they were given over to this kind of wantonness, lustfulness, the excess of pleasure. You might want to write down Galatians 5, 19, 2 Peter 2, 7, Romans 13, 13. It describes people just given over to that. And he's saying that you are some of these. Don't live this way. Don't be given over to this kind of impurity. And then lastly, notice this little word impurity that he wraps up verse 19 with. He says it's the uncleanness or filth of every physical or natural sense. This is talking about just lewdness, moral impurity, moral impurity, any kind of uncleanness, any unnatural pollution. Whether acted out by yourself or someone else, this is the moral impurity. Colossians 3, 5, Paul says to mortify the deeds of the flesh. You've got to kill that stuff. And so the apostle is saying here in verses 17 to 19 that the Gentiles had abandoned themselves to greedy practice, to every type of impurity, to sensuality, and because it was of their calloused hearts. And they disregarded all the rights and the feelings of other people. They just were given over to unbridled lust, wanton self-assertion and pleasure. In other words, they're digging their own grave. They're storing up wrath upon wrath for themselves. 
That's, he's saying, don't go back to this. Don't go back to this. But look at number four here with me this morning. Oh, I love this. We're going to end with good news this morning. Look at number four, sanctity. Verses 20 and 21, sanctity. This is the apostle now encouraging. He says in Ephesians 4, 20 and 21, these wonderful words of truth. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way you learned of Jesus. It didn't come from this. You didn't learn about Christ through immoral living, through godless action. He said you did not learn of him this way, assuming that you've, notice these words, heard about him, were taught in him. We must learn of Christ. We must hear of him. We must be taught in him. And he wraps it all together by saying, as the truth is in Jesus. As the truth is in Jesus. Listen, we should not stutter to the times in which we live. We should declare with loving boldness against the hard ignorance and depravity that characterize the pagan world in which we live even, that the whole process of Christ-centered teaching to learn of him to honor him is something that sets us free from those things. Listen, Christianity is not a code, it's a person. We're not given over to a list of do's and don'ts. We come to learn of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul's saying here that what the readers had learned about through the apostolic message of the gospel, they had heard it, they learned it, they received it, they received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They welcomed him into their lives. And he's saying learning of Christ here is a living person. And we are to be shaped by the truth that is in Jesus. John chapter 1 says that Christ came, the Word became flesh, and He was full of grace and truth. Jesus said it in John 14, 6, I am the way, the what? Truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Remember Jesus before Pilate, and Pilate says, hey, what is truth? What is truth? He was a philosopher, a murderer, a thief. He had a wanton bloodlust to crucify people, but he was a philosopher. Tell me, Jesus, what is truth? He's being sarcastic. He's being cutting to him. And people might say that to you today. What's true for me might not be true for you. Well, that's not truth. That's accommodationalism. Right? That's the mentality of the pagan mind today. I can have my own truth. I can invent my own Bible. I can have a law unto myself. It may not be true for you. It's true for me. That's not truth. Truth by its ex itself is exclusive. Two things that are claiming the opposites both cannot be true. One will be true. One will be false. Jesus said it. I am the truth. He's full of grace and truth. We've come, Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, you've come to the knowledge of the truth. See, there's one truth, one way, one gospel, one Lord, one faith, and it's through the truth that is in Jesus Christ. And so here he is saying that anything else to that rule of righteousness 
to the summons of the standard of the gospel. He says, you didn't learn Christ through lascivious action. He says, you heard of him. You were taught in him. You've learned of him. And it's the truth that's in Jesus. It's this wonderful expression, learning of Christ. You've heard of him. The truth is embodied in him. And the people here in Ephesus knew this. They were instructed not only in the person of Christ, but what he demanded of his gospel. This is the truth that's in him. The truth that's in him. First uh, John chapter 5 and verse 20. First John chapter 5 and verse 20. I think John brings us to the nexus of this issue. He said that we know that the Son of God, that's Jesus, has come and has given us understanding. See, he places a huge premium on the mental, on the cognitive. This is not a feeling. They didn't feel their way into heaven. This is not mere emotion. So that we may know him, John says, who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Notice that. Three times. He's true. We are in him who is true. And he is the true God. He's the true God. Paul says in Hebrews chapter 6, of Paul is the writer of Hebrews he said, we have this hope based on two immutable things. He says, first of all, adonitas, it's impossible for God to lie. Why? Because he's true. He's true. He cannot do anything that's not consistent with his holy character. Jesus Christ came full of grace, full of truth. In John 15, he says, we're approaching an hour where the wicked one is coming and he has nothing on me. There was nothing of falsehood, nothing of waywardness about Jesus that Satan could have latched onto that little thing and said, I found an area of your life, Jesus, that's not true, that's not righteous, that's not holy. And if so, it would have unmasked Jesus as a, a liar, a lunatic, and a fraud. But you see, he's character full of truth, holy, righteous, grace and truth. He's the way, the truth, and we serve a living and true God. This is who our Savior is. There's a sanctity to this. You did not learn him in error, but he is the truth. Let's go to one of the Gospels this morning, Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is bidding people to come. You know what's the wonderful hope this morning? Is he calls us to go out into the world and to bid people to come. It doesn't matter what sin they're involved in, what they've done and who they've done it with. We're to ask them to come. We're to ask them to come. Come and follow Christ. We're to go to the highways and byways and to seek and save that which is lost and to give hope for people's lives. You know, people today want to, by their feelings, recreate themselves. We saw it last week as we talked about this. A man says, I'm born a man. I'm created as a man, as male. But yet now I feel like a woman. So the fact is that 
feeling now somehow reconstructs all that DNA in the XY chromosome. It doesn't work that way, folks. This last week, maybe you saw this woman in Spokane who's head of the NAACP there. She's president of that chapter. And she was at a press conference, and she has represented herself as being African-American, as being a black woman. There's only a problem with this. She's not black. She has white parents. And this man asked her a question and said, are your parents African-American? And she said, excuse me, I I don't understand your question. (laughs) Ignorance is bliss, isn't it? She has a white mother and a white father. She represented another man, an African-American man, as being her dad. Lied about her own parents. Her parents adopted some kids, African-American children. But she, over time, had gone through a process by which she wanted to be represented as African-American. And so people are saying that as one is maybe transgender by feeling, I'm no longer a man, I'm just going to feel like a woman, she's transracial. I'm not black because, pardon me, I'm not white because I feel that I'm not white. That's how crazy our culture is, folks. By feeling, nothing more than feeling. We want to change our male or female identity. We want to even say that our skin color, even though you may be white or black or brown skin, whatever it may be, you're created that way by God. And if we simply say, I feel that I'm this, it somehow changes that? I don't think so. This is what our Lord is dealing with here. He's bidding lost people to come. Confused people, sinful people, wayward people. He's saying, come. Come, rediscover your identity in the image of a holy God. Come and have salvation beyond how you have tried to recreate yourself. And notice this here in verse 28. He says, come to me. Not to a code, not to a prescribed catechism, not to a a list of do's and don'ts. He says, come to me. All ye who labor, you're trying to earn it, and are heavy laden, heavy burdened. He says, I'll give you rest. Oh, that's good news, isn't it? Rest from religious duty, rest from religious activity, rest from trying to earn your way to heaven. He says, take my yoke upon you. Here it is. Learn from me. The yoke was the piece of wood that would bring two animals together in the burying of a, of, a, of a field or planting of a vineyard or something, that yoke, that heavy yoke of wood would go around animals so that they could be controlled and they could be plowed in a, in a certain direction. And the Pharisees were putting a yoke of religious activity and law-keeping and rules and regulations that no man could do. It burdened them. And Jesus says, I'll give you freedom. Come to me. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I'll give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. You will find rest for your souls. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that good? A Savior who has bore the yoke for us, took the penalty of our sin, bore it for us. He says, my yoke's easy. My yoke is easy. Come to me. Sanctity. Holiness. Lastly, Paul mentions here, number five, what I call testimony. 
testimony, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. And here we see this put-off, put-on relationship come. Here he's giving them great hope, but yet great responsibility. He's saying that you've learned the truth in Jesus. You've heard about him. You've learned it. You've studied it. You've repented. You've walking in a manner worthy of your calling. Now he says, put off your old self. Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put off the old self. Put off that old self. That that old man is the sum total of their former practices, the sum total of their ungodly attitudes. Put off the harmful desires which beguile you into sin and error. Put off the corruption and destruction that's the consequence of working in you. Bid a long and final farewell to those things. I love what Jonathan Edwards would say. He says, give a bill of divorcement to your sin. Send it on its way. Don't have anything to do with it anymore. The old ways are to be abandoned. And Paul says, put them off. Put off those old ways. And that's done in salvation, isn't it? We turn from our sin. It's called repentance. And we follow Christ. Jesus said it at the beginning of his ministry in Mark 1, repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin. You're headed off in one direction. You're headed off, as it were, to a place of sinfulness, and you're marching in one way, and repentance says, I make an about face, and I turn, and I go into another way. It's a newness of life, but metanoia, repentance, means a change of mind. You're heading in one direction. You turn, and you're heading in a different direction. So he says, abandon those old ways. And notice here, renewal is called for. He says, and be renewed in the, this is the only time you'll see this in Scripture, the spirit of your minds. The spirit of your minds. Paul says in Romans 12, 2, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of what? Your minds. Colossians 3, 1, set your minds on things above. Fix your minds on that which is eternal. You know, back in the 70s, at the end of the Jesus movement, people would say about this generation, in fact, Elton John put it down in a song. He says, Jesus freaks out on the streets handing tickets out for God. Remember that song? And they were, they were really taken by a revival that was happening among the peace pollution revolution crowd. They were no longer given to the uh, war peace movement of the 60s. They wanted to know the Prince of Peace in Jesus. And during that time, people would say, these people are too heavenly-minded to do any earthly good. Do you remember this? Can I tell you something here, beloved? Unless you are heavenly-minded, you cannot do any earthly good. And Paul is saying, be heavenly-minded, be renewed, be renewed daily, be given over to heavenly thinking, set your minds on things above, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Again, what you believe determines how you behave. Have a renewed mind. 
Have thoughts that honor the Lord. Don't fill your mind with the things of this world, garbage in, garbage out. Be transformed. Fix your minds on things that honor the Lord. Again, be childlike in terms of sin, but adult in your thinking, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Set your minds. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And some translators will say this could mean the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit transforming believers the Spirit's power in the inner being to renew us every day, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So in the spirit of our minds, the Holy Spirit affecting our thoughts, we want to have thoughts that honor the Lord, thoughts that are no longer to the former way of life, to the deceitfulness of the old life, going back to the well. It's like a dog returning to its vomit. We don't want to fill our hearts and minds with the things that numb us, that make us callous against the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to have a clear conscience, pure minds, holy minds to honor and think about the Lord. In regards to sin, be naive, be childlike. But in regards to your thinking of holiness, be renewed daily. And notice what Paul says here. It's not just renewed minds. It's not just putting off that old way of life which has been corrupt through the deceitful desires and a renewed mind but by the spirit of minds, but he says, put on the new self. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. And here he brings the standard to us in righteousness and holiness. That's our life now as believers. As we close this morning, that's the, that's the new life. Listen, holy people that have been be, have been people that have been made holy by their calling should be holy in their living. Not again sinlessness, but holiness. Righteousness. Righteousness here. Righteousness and holiness. Why? Because that depicts who God is. He's righteous. He's holy. And if we say we represent Him, we should be also righteous and holy. Alexander the Great was speaking, a young man, he had conquered most of the known world at a very young age. And he was speaking before a group of soldiers, young men. And this one young man down front was disrupting him. He was being rude to him. He wasn't paying attention to him. And Alexander the Great looked at this young man and he said, young man, what is your name? And the young man looked up, caught off guard, was a bit sheepish, was a bit cowering now in his arrogance, and he said, my name is Alexander, sir. And Alexander the Great looked at him and he says, that's my name. That's my name. Either change your name or change your ways. You're going to take my name. You got to live different. This morning, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we've taken his name. We call ourselves Christians, Christians. Paul is saying here, put off the old self, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new self, be recreated. It's the work of God. He does this in our lives in righteousness and holiness. Change your name or change your ways. We want to live faithful holy lies for him. Beloved, put on the new man. Put on the new man. Paul says in, in Romans 
chapter 13, the last verse in verse 14, he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In, in Galatians 3, 27, he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then he says, so there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor freeze, Male nor female, you are all one in Christ. You put on Christ. That's what salvation is. We have now put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has done this to us and for us. We want to live lives pleasing to him. We want to live lives that demonstrate who he is. We must forsake our sin, but Romans 6, 4 says we are to walk in newness of life. Walk in newness of life. Turn from things. Listen, it's a daily thing we have to do, isn't it? We have to daily run from sin and pursue righteousness. It's a daily life of repentance. Say no to sin and yes to God. We are to honor him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's testimony. We have an identity, and it's not our former ways according to the futility of our mind. We're to walk worthy of the manner by which we've been called. We have an identity. And because of that, we know we've been saved from the depravity of our life. Everything that made us unable to save ourselves, sin had affected every fiber of our being. Total inability, we could not save ourselves. And because of that, he calls us away from impurity. Don't let your heart become callous. Don't be given over to sensuality. Don't be given over to form of every kind of greed and covetousness. Don't be given over to any kind of wantonness of sin and purity. But he says, live in sanctity. You did not learn Christ in this way. You've heard of him. You've learned of him. Now the truth is found in Jesus. Live for him. And because of that, because he's the true God, we have a testimony. And that testimony is the transformed life. Can I tell you something as we close this morning, beloved? How do we win Palm City for Jesus? How do we win Port St. Lucie for Jesus? How do we live, live, live in a way that wins Jupiter and Stuart and Fort Pierce for the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not by handing out tracks and bumper stickers. The Great Commission is not go ye into the world and hand out paper. <laughs> That's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is go into all the world and make disciples. How is that done? You are the greatest witnessing tool that your neighbors and friends and co-workers could see. It's the transform life. And that life lived in community, in society, in school, in education, in sports, in the arts, in your manner of life. Are you living away? that people will say, well, I, I knew that man, I knew that woman before they came to Jesus. Look at their lives. They're different. They're new creations. They've put off the old ways. They're being renewed daily. We're growing in grace, but we've put on the new man, and God is doing his work, and we're being conformed to righteousness and holiness every day. That's the work of grace. We're going to close with this one verse, Colossians chapter 3. Verses 9 to 11. This is the companion section of scriptures to what the apostles have been instructing us on. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 
2.11. He says, but now, here's the put off. You must put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Jerry Bridges calls these things respectable sins. I love that. Because people think, hey, if I'm not doing drugs and I'm not sleeping around and I'm not involved in some sort of lascivious lifestyle, I'm pretty good. We all lie, right? Everyone lies. We all get angry sometimes. We might gossip about somebody. We might slander. He says, don't lie. Put it off. Don't be given over to malice. That's the purposeness of motive that wants to purposely harm someone's character. Wipe them out. It's a revenge. He says, don't be given over to any of that obscene talk. He says, you put off the old self. Even the respectable sins we have to put off. And then he says, and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Remember last week in Romans 1? They knew him as God. They're without excuse. They know that he is divine in his attributes, he's eternal in his power and his nature, but they, as a choice, as an act of defiant rebellion, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul's saying that. That's not you. That's not you. As his people, as his church, you've put off the old. You're being renewed daily. You've put on the new, and you're being conformed to righteousness and holiness every day. So he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one even has a complaint about another, it doesn't even have to be a sin issue. Forgive one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And of all, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in harmony before our God. There it is, new life. In Jesus Christ. How is it that we can turn Palm City upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ? Let your life demonstrate the newness of your salvation. If we've been holy in our calling, we must be holy in our living. Put off the old. Be renewed daily. Put on the new man. And let your life speak as a testimony of God's grace to this culture. That's how we win the day. Amen? That's how we accomplish God's heavenly purposes. Go out to all the world, make disciples. Let's pray, beloved. Lord, we're grateful for your amazing grace. It's amazing grace. Unmerited favor through Christ to those who deserve your curse. We once were defiled, we once were wayward, we once were slaves to disobedience full of sin. Regardless of how that sin manifested itself, we were enemies of God, but now we've been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can go to a lost world, a lost world that seemingly today has gone insane. Even the secular pundits today, Lord, say that the inmates are running the asylum. We need revival in our nation. We need 
heaven-sent revival. We need reformation. And that comes not through the rule of law, but through the rule of faith, through the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, because only your gospel can change wicked hearts like mine. And so, Lord, may we do this this week. May we be fit to give a reason for the hope that's in us with reverence, with gentleness, with humility, with grace. May we pray for those whose minds have been twisted. May we go to them with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that we were once just like that. As we proclaim our deliverance, may we not forget our depravity. That will give us a heart of love for those that have been wayward in their faith. So, Lord, we're thankful for this portion of Scripture. What a glorious delight to walk worthy of the manner in which we've been called. Perfect your work in us, Lord. May we be holy and righteous, not because that's who we are in, in our being. No, that's a gift of your grace. May we be honorable to you because daily we are being created a new, a new life, the new community, the new humanity, renewed in the spirit of our minds, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. May we be that people this week. Amen.